My father was a high school teacher, but he was a, a frustrated painter. He was, <laughs> he was a hobbyist and he, he loved to paint and he loved to sketch. Um, so when I was five or six years old, I got my first sketchbook. And so I've been sketching since I was very young. Because at that point, like, I knew I was capable of creating a detailed, fully sketched out render, all that stuff. But I was taking a really long time on it because of how detail-oriented I am and just how, you know, much of a perfectionist I am and how I want all the lines to be perfect and stuff like that. There's sort of two stages to being on set. There's learning about how a set works, which is important because that's like learning to drive before you go on a highway. Because <laughs> if you're on set and you're in the way and you're being a pain, you'll get kicked off pretty quick quickly because you're just wasting time and you're just being a pain but once you've learned that then you get to learn that cinematographers yeah there's a certain way to do things on set but once you know what you're doing you sort of do what you want and you can sort of break the rules and I guess that's the, the case with anything like I'm sure it's the same with industrial design there's a certain way you got to use materials but then once you understand how the material works you can do what the fuck you want and it it's normally let, let through because you've got that experience I'm not saying do better the next time Obviously, you can take it to the next level, but I would never say do better the next time. It's not about doing better the next time. It's about what have you learned? What can you take it to the next level the next time? So that's the difference. That's what I meant by shifting your mindset. It would be great to be able to understand that in first year, but I think, unfortunately, it's something you can only understand having experienced it. Like to tell someone who's just started, just starting out, they have so little experience doing this. They have a very limited skill set. And to say, don't, don't worry about this number that we have to attribute to everything you do. You know, it's like for them, it's like that's the, that is the one link to what, how they're doing basically, you know, especially if you're coming from high school. process podcast episode 300 zach we we made it we, we made it. it 300 and uh big number it's pretty wild big number it's really wild. and today we're gonna do something a little different where we're compiling like a bunch of the best of moments mm -hmm. from the last 299 episodes um and we're gonna use up like the rest of the week like today 300 tomorrow 301 day after 302 and then friday 303 to kind of celebrate the people that we've had on and that we've talked to in no particular order and with no particular selection criteria just our best moments and our kind of biggest takeaways and favorite times that we've had with uh with all these pretty dope people yeah there's all the, a lot all the the big brain moments the <laughs> the big brain moments the inspiring exactly. moments the interesting or you know those cool there's, moments. and there's been some funny ones yeah there's, there's been, been some, some funny, funny ones too or or like kind uh, of you know not um you know maybe like a controversial opinion or something that's a bit like mm -hmm. eye-opening or something like that right you know it's all about like getting a broader perspective right in design so that's what we're doing for you today tomorrow the day after and the day after that so um buckle up ladies and gentlemen and enjoy episode 300 the best of part one 
starting off our part one of our best of 300 series here we have one of the boys one of our favorite humans on this planet sean Pladdock. like that's <laughs> it's one thing that i really look up to you with is your dedication and your just your pure consistency Shit. with practice like and this isn't even me trying to toot your own horn or give you praise at all. This is just me acknowledging the fact that you're a very dedicated individual. And I think that's one thing that I tried to adopt from hanging out with you a whole lot, like especially in second year and third year, where and even in fourth year, where for the most part, the group of us was pretty much inseparable. Mm -hmm. I tried to just soak up as much of that dedication and consistency to even just the simple act of sketching like how how many how many sketchbooks did you end up going through in the in the four years that you were at school um like a stupid amount i i probably did two per semester every year holy Jesus. probably oh, um in fourth year first semester i might have had a bit more but that's I might have had like two and a half, maybe. So yeah. I, I did a bunch of sketchbooks too, and in design foundations because I knew my sketching was really weak. I think I did. Mm -hmm. I think I did six or seven in the year. Did you actually? And so throughout, throughout my five years of like design foundations plus ID, like it's probably close to 20 sketchbooks or something like that and i still have all of them holy Ooh. christmas hell yeah i still have all of them That's except for the ones that were kept which should be most of the big flex i think it was i would think i think it was just the first year ones that got kept maybe the third year as well i was gonna say i'm pretty sure some of your third year ones got kept i think so i'm pretty sure i have, they, I, mean, I have if all of them not, in a closet they i need be. to like look through them scan some stuff have you ever thought about like have you ever gone back through your routinely uh and just look at where you come like how how important is looking at where you were versus where you are now do you ever it's really like, nice to have compare? That, yeah it's really nice to have some sort of validation that like i have improved because mm -hmm. as much as i don't want to like it, you know toot my own horn or just you know anything of the sort you brag just, this is this is all about you well there's there's no substitute for practice and so Very true. I, I knew that in design foundations, like I could tell that my sketching was really weak because I didn't have much of a background in that anyways. And so I just went at it and I enjoyed it a lot. And that was a big part of like, it's, it's like that saying, if you enjoy what you do, you'll never work a day in your life sort of thing. I just really enjoyed it. And so I had no mm. problem setting aside plenty of time to do it. What about it did you enjoy? Because if like if you look at it from a very zoomed out level, you're putting a piece, you're putting a pen on a piece of paper, and you're making a bunch of lines, right? Like it doesn't doesn't necessarily seem inherently interesting. It's expressive, and I think that like the more you do it, the more you start to develop your style. Hmm. And that's why like by the time we hit fourth year, like all the people that you could tell were practicing had their own way of doing things in their own style. It's this very is true. very true. This is very true. Yeah, that's a good point. Whereas, like, you know, like, I have a very bold, like, I love the thick lines, and I use, like, a Sharpie and try to really, like, generate interest with, like, my line work and just mm -hmm. the way I do renderings and just, like, the way I approach it is drastically different than, like, you would approach it, Dylan. 
and you would approach it, Zach. This is true. Yeah. And like all three of us are comparable at sketching. Like we're all good at it. And yet we're mm-hmm. so drastically different style wise that if you if you hung up ten sketches of ours on a wall, you'd probably be able to tell really easily which ones belong to who. In terms of y- your specific style, Sean, when I was on Instagram, like you you couldn't see anything that was comparable to a Sean Platic sketch in terms of the line weight, the perspective, the composition on a page. Can you walk me th- or can you walk us through how you kind of came to understand your own style? I think um, if you if you even know, it's it's tricky because I think um, I, I had a really big improvement in first year because I just practiced so much first of all, but this like getting feedback from Catherine and Reese especially was super helpful. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, trying to figure out my own style was really kind of difficult to describe because it was a lot of subconscious like i knew what i wanted my sketches to look like i wanted them to be bold and i wanted them to like stand out off on a page i wanted to have like you know everything i'm super detail oriented so i wanted to include just hyper amounts of detail and stuff like that and i mean my sketching style like was probably like it's again it's hard to describe it was probably accumulation of understanding many people that I've seen online or just professional work that I've seen. I don't think it, it like it wasn't like I was trying to imitate one person. Right. You're not right. you're not pulling off of one source yeah. of reference. You're kind of taking it from all these different places and putting it into a mixing pod and making it your own at yeah. the end of the day, right? Because even with like with line work specifically <clears throat> Like some people really like to just do one big black outline. That's one width. But I didn't find that that was yeah. really bold or dynamic enough because it kind of alienated the sketch a little bit or that it felt kind of encompassed by the outline. Right. So I'll still mm-hmm. have like some some of an outline. But for me, it was just like seeing surfaces overlap. Like that needed to be darker because when I would look at something, I would see kind of a shadow. Mm-hmm. And so I'd want to naturally make that darker because it would be in shadow. And it was just a, 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 a accumulation of looking at looking at objects that I was trying to sketch and trying to understand it, as well as trying to develop what I wanted my style to be. Hmm. If that makes sense. Do you feel like you've... Do, it makes sense. Do you feel like you've made it? Like you've arrived at that style that you wanted <laughs> back in foundations or in high it's school? It's always a work in progress. It's always a work in progress. Mm-hmm. I think like specifically like I I started working on different things like after second year because after second year I think my style had sort of like become what it was but then I started focusing on other things like improving my renderings improving my detailing and surfacing and stuff like that and then by the end of third year and like in fourth year my focus was trying to kind of speed things up because at that point like I knew I was capable of creating a detailed fully sketched out render all that stuff but i was taking a really long time on it because of how detail oriented i am and just how you know much of a perfectionist i am and how i want all the lines to be perfect and stuff like that and so that was a big thing that i worked on in fourth year and i'm still working on now like with most of my inktober stuff was just trying to be expressive still maintain the kind of bold style but just do it quicker 
introducing to you today our second guest of our Best of 300 series. Uh, we bring to you our potentially only Australian guest thus far, um, the good old Campbell James. So, so Campbell, I got a question for you. Go for Since it. I don't even I don't even know really exactly what is how did you and uh, Dylan meet? Oh, uh, this is actually a really good story because I, I know I know a little bit of roughly, but not but not the whole story. It's actually I, I love this story. I think it's a very funny like <laughs> meeting story. Um, so oh, yeah. uh, one of a good friend of the Daily Talk Show, which is a podcast, Dill was helping out with in Australia. Yeah. One of their really frequent guests uh, is a really good friend of mine, Hayden Dibb, and he organized uh, a drinks uh, with filmmakers in Melbourne. And so I missed a few of them, but I finally went to one. And I think it was the first one that Dill went to. Um, yeah, it was the only one that I went to. <laughs> there you go. It was the only one I went to too. <laughs> it was meant to be. Um, and so anyway, rocked up and then there was this Canadian guy and I'm like, fuck yeah, I love Canada. Like... I'm really into mountain biking, so I was like, sick, I get to talk about fucking bears and shit like that. Um, Hell yeah. And we were talking, oh, we got into some weird topics, but we were just yeah. having drinks, talking about just shit. And it was meant to be a filmmaker's drink, so you're meant to be talking about like, uh, no, you don't. Actually, that's that's a lie. You're not meant to talk about filmmaking. I think they try and discourage it because they're like, fuck, keep work at work. But um, yeah. So yeah, ended up having a chat and then he was telling me about the podcast and so I'm like, oh, sick. And I had heard about it before from Hayden, um, but never really like looked at it. And on the train ride home, I think I smashed three episodes and then, um, yeah, Dil was like, oh, I'll talk to you about this meeting on the, on the podcast tomorrow. It would be funny. I'm like, hell yeah. And then the next day <laughs> he gets like a shard of, oh no, that's right. You were using um, a French press coffee maker yeah. and you shoved it through your thumb yeah and so you got like a <laughs> massive gash in his thumb and i'm like oh wow that's uh that's not good mate hope you're all right <laughs> yeah that's that's literally how we met that's crazy the timing dude yeah. you you bought me my first beer in Australia. Oh, mate, that makes me feel so good. <laughs> you're you're that's like, like you had a drink place. yet? Yeah, you're like, have you had a drink yet? I'm like, no, I like literally just got here and I'd been there for like an hour already and was just kind of meandering around. And you're like, you mate, want a beer? You can and tell I was like, that you're not sure. Australian. Yeah, I'm not Australian at all. <laughs> it's a different, it's a different culture. If you haven't had a beer culture. within the first five minutes, of, uh, well, if you haven't had a beer with even being there for five minutes, something's wrong. What's going on, mate? <laughs> okay, so talk to me about cameras for a second because. Oh, is that a good idea? <laughs> is that a good idea? I mean, yeah, you I'm guys interested. Go. I'll, I'll tune out because I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I want I want to talk about your your film your 3D film camera first because oh. that was one thing you showed it to me right as you dropped me off on like my second or third last day in Australia, and That's I never right. got a chance to like talk much about it after. Oh. But I believe from what I remember, it's that Nish Nishika N8000. Oh, mate, you got it. Yeah, well done. No one actually gets that. So you should I'm, put some I'm round of applause legend. audio in there for that. <laughs> yeah. Singular yeah, clap. Yeah. So what? what is a... Th first off, what is a 3D film camera? All Tell right. me that. So it's um, it started off... They're called stereo cameras. 
and what they are are their cameras with four lenses and with one shutter. And when you take a photo, it'll take the same photo at the exact same time from four different angles. Um, and the millimeter of the lens, so the what angle of the lens is the same. It's just because of the placement. They're a little bit different in terms of um, like distance apart and that kind of thing. So when you take the photo, it goes onto the film and then once you get it processed and scanned, you get back these four photos that look exactly the same. But once you process it, um, they're all at very small different angles. So it sort of looks like you're moving around an object. And so once I do a little Photoshop magic, um, it makes it look like the whole scene sort of spinning around a certain point. Um, and so I create little videos using that and it's just sort of like, I think I've been told that they're meant to be like the hipster boomerang. <laughs> That's the nickname for yeah, them. Yeah, I can see that. And they're definitely it's the very fitting. Yeah, they're definitely the hipster boomerang because they take a long fucking time to make as well. Can I swear on here? I should have probably asked first. Oh, dude, no drop. Yeah. I'd be disappointed if you didn't <laughs> swear ex like excessively. I have to actually. You that reminds me. I've got to be careful because I'm at my girlfriend's. Her parents aren't very good with swearing, so I probably should calm it down a bit because the okay, headphones make enough. me think I can go as loud as I want. When when did you start with cameras? When does that enter your life as something you do? <laughs> this is a good story, actually. So my dad studied photography at RMIT and actually lives just down the road oh, from where I live now. But the thing that makes it crazier is that we were actually from Adelaide, so he moved over here to study that oh, and live sure. where he did. Anyway, turn the clock forward, I think it was like 20 years or something, I'm born. Um, and so I was always just running around trying to do different things. And I really got obsessed with taking photos of cars and birds. But I would just sit in the car, wherever we go, and just take photos of cool cars I going past. I love that. It was the weirdest thing. And, <laughs> and my parents got sick of me stealing their camera, so they wow. bought me my own. So it was like a, a Fuji film and it had like this massive zoom lens on it. I was like, sick, I can get mad shots of birds now. <laughs> get um, an Ibis in there. And I, that's it, mate. I actually made an Ibis in primary can, school really? once. Come um, back to that story. Come back to that story. Yeah. It was life size as well. Bing rat. All right. Anyway, moving forward, every time I talk about it be like oh, i want to make this my career and my dad's like don't do it because i tried and it's really hard and i'm like okay i won't do i won't do photography that can be a hobby that can be fun i'll do something else and then in high school i discovered my love mm. for filmmaking and i did a lot of mountain bike videos <laughs> with myself uh which are on youtube and they're very embarrassing because they're all self-filmed and they've got like these mad drum and bass tracks mm, behind them and that classic. kind of thing. And then that evolved. Yeah. And then that evolved to me getting my first DSLR, which was like a, mm. it was a T3i for you American and Canadian <laughs> viewers. Um, <laughs> we don't call them that here. We've, we call them 600 Ds. But um, anyway, loved that, used that for ages. And then ended up getting my first um, full-frame DSLR, which was a 5D Mark III, which was sick. And that was just as I was um, finishing my first year of uni. Um, and at uni, I was studying filmmaking because it sort of took over my life. And 
after filming a lot of mountain bike um, events and that kind of thing, I was really getting a, a grip. I was doing it by myself um, and then had do, doing uni as well. That had helped a lot and just sort of evolved to doing more photography again, started doing some paid gigs and I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, whoops, dad, I'm a photographer. I accidentally <laughs> did it. You, you, you fell into it basically. Yeah, like I always loved doing it and it was sort of always a dream to be a professional photographer but never really pursued it heavily because I knew that it wasn't going to be a super stable thing um, and having seen my parents financially struggle through their own experiences I was like I yeah. don't want to do that <laughs> not the way you want to start and then you, you you end up you end up doing all these paid gigs so where did the interest in automotive like and cars start for you um I think there's this famous story of me and one of the my family friends um, sitting down watching uh, a race series we have in Australia called the V8 Supercars. We would have been oh, probably one year old or something like that, sitting down watching it. We were just glued to the TV. And I think that's just where it started. Like, I remember I got a little Hot Wheels car as well. And it had, um, it was a NASCAR and it was a Valvoline sponsored car. And in the V8 Supercars, there was also a Valvoline sponsored car. So I was like, oh, it's the same car. Mm. So that became... <laughs> my favorite race team and yeah just got obsessed Aww. with it i think is that like the white so with the cute. blue and red so how yeah. yeah that's it with a big v man you're it's almost good. like you've watched racing before Dylan. i don't need i don't even know what any of those words mean <laughs> to be quite honest so how then do you go from this this little kid who enjoys playing with this hot wheels car and watching it on tv to doing behind the scenes work for McLaren. How does that yeah, come about? Uh, you have good yeah, friends. Yeah, that's one of the coolest things. I was checking out the photos yeah. too, and I was like, man, that is that is that is awesome. Yeah, I was listening yeah, to the podcast the other day, and when I heard that Zach was obsessed with McLaren, he got called McLaren lover. I was like, oh, he's gonna love this. Yeah. <laughs> he's gonna love this. I I told him that too. That's how I sold you coming on the show. I was like, what if we got like what if we got my friend Campbell on the show? Like he's and Zach's like, yeah, we could. And I said, he's taking photos f like with McLaren. And Zach said, get, get him on the podcast now. So, so an interesting thing, like you, it's, it's behind the scenes stuff. So you're not behind, you're not shooting on the main camera, right? Yeah. Is that's that how correct. I understand it? Yeah. So what's the role of someone shooting? Like why shoot behind the scenes stuff for something like this? So the main reason that people do it is to get on sets. So people aren't going to hire me to do the shooting because I don't have the experience or like the connections and that kind of thing. So the fact that I had the connection to just be on set, it means that they can pay me fuck all and I can be filming there. And it's not like I have to do some weird job like go buy coffees. I'm actually there creating something and they can see afterwards that, oh wow if he shot it like this he's obviously got an eye because he can see it the same sort of way we were as well and mm. in one of the recent videos that i had made for someone some of the shots that i had shot looked exactly the same they like fit in perfectly with the actual shot so i was like oh okay that's good the colors are looking the same so yeah. Wow. But it just, the main part is to get you on set and you get to watch how people work and you get to meet people as well. Yeah. Right. And that's one thing that I learned a lot of, like going to shoots with Josh and Tommy and, and Mason at Big Media Company. 
was while I didn't necessarily learn how to shoot a video, I got to watch how Josh was holding the camera, got to see where he's walking around, see what Tommy's doing and like see the interactions on set for all these different things and like how people are acting. Yeah. And I think that ultimately taught me so much more than if I were to go to school for for filmmaking or, or cinematography or whatever it is. I learned so much more by just watching them and looking at them and seeing what they're doing as opposed to sitting in a classroom and hearing someone say like the the DP stands here and this stands there and blah 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 blah. It's like that's great, but until you're actually there in person experiencing these things and seeing it, that's where you actually learn something. Would you agree? Definitely. I think there's sort of two stages to being on set. There's learning about how a set works, which is important because that's like learning to drive before you go on a highway. Because <laughs> if you're on set Very and true. you're in the way and you're being a pain, you'll get kicked off pretty quick, quickly because you're just wasting time and you're just being a pain. Um, but once you've learned that, then you get to learn that cinematographers, yeah, there's a certain way to do things on set. But once you know what you're doing, you sort of do what you want and you can sort of break the rules. And I guess that's the, the case with anything. Like I'm sure it's the same with industrial design. There's a certain way you mm. got to use materials, but then once you understand how the material works, you can do what the fuck you want. And it is normally let, let through because you've got that experience. Next up in our part one, best of 300, is one of our profs of design school, the infamous, but frankly amazing, uh, Catherine Chong. For me, my learning curve, you know, 25 years ago, my learning curve is is that um, I finally, it took me a while, it's not immediate, right? So yeah. it, it really took me about a year and a half, at least, you know, by the time I get to second year that I started to kind of see, right, that mm. it's not about perfection. You know, it's not about trying to get your project or, or work or assignment to be perfect. For me, it's about what is that project about where is that journey taking me where am i heading with this project right um obviously there is a deadline unfortunately yeah. <laughs> everything we do in the project there is always a deadline and you wanted to kind of get there um so it, it took me a while to really kind of understand that you know you focus on that learning journey you're focusing on um if i stumble you know it's fine i get back up and i learn the next time not immediate, but next time, right? Um, so even even in my professional, you know, experience, um, you know, even back in you know automotive industry when I was there, and you stumble, you always stumble. There was not always a hurdle. There was always bump along the way. There's never a smooth sailing, never, right? Um, and also the decisions you make in terms of you know, be it whether it's creative, you know, design related, or be it whether it's you know business side of things <laughs> related, but you always make decisions. And this is this is what I would you know um, always encourage students to do even today. You know, even my current students, right? Is that um, the journey is not about trying to complete a perfect assignment or a project. It's about learning how to make decision. Whether the decision is a great decision at that particular time, or whether decision is, you know what, later I'm gonna regret a decision. Yeah. 
but it's all part of that learning curve. It's 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 to me there's no different than 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 you know life decisions sometimes, mm. you know. Um, so it's really kind of learning that starts um, and reflecting on it. Um, I'm not saying do better the next time. Obviously, you can take it to the next level, right? You can always take it next level, but I will never say do better the next time. It's not about doing better the next time. It's about what have you learned? What can you take it to the next level mm-hmm. the next time? So that's the difference. That's what I meant by shifting your mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So when you're focusing on that learning journey, then you're not putting such a hard time on yourself. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's not, again, it's not about being that perfect person. No one is perfect in this world. Not even Einstein. <laughs> no, he had his problems. Oh, I'm pretty sure everyone would, would have that, right? So, yeah, so it's about growing. Yeah, yeah. I like to see it as about growing. Uh, yeah. Where, because you obviously have a lot more experience than us, Zach and I are relative, relative babies to the, <laughs> the professional industry. <laughs> yeah. Lots to learn, lots to learn. Oh, I'm still learning, to be honest. You know, yeah. I don't have all the answers. I don't think I have all the answer and I will never have all the answer, of course. Um, but I, how do I put it? Um, I've seen, you know, like I said, you know, you guys, when I have you guys and also, you know, I'm seeing my, my current students as well. Um, yes, I absolutely understand the situation is that, you know, I've seen them, they, they sort of say, yeah, makes sense, understood, but you know, they will still come back to to asking, well, you know, why am I still getting meet 70? I thought I'm on the 80. I put in a lot of effort to, into this assignment, right? So my explanation would be to them, um, one is try to help them understand, again, help them to um, shift the mindset, to see it from a different perspective. I would say to them, instead of asking me the questions of, I think I'm on an 80 zone, why am I getting 75? Then I would say to them, shift the mindset and ask a different question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As now you see that you're on 75, how do you get to the 80? So that's a more constructive, right? So when you start asking the right question, then you will start making the right decision. Now, the decision doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, um, get it right right away. It's always that small learning curve. So I would always, that's the reason why I always ask students out. It's not about trying to kind of, you know, um, making them feel bad, but it's my question back to the students is always constructive. I always, I say, for example, the sketching, right? So I would always say, okay, now, where do you think that line is going? Do you see where that line's going? Do you know where your vanishing point is? Say, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So it's to make the students see it, right? Because when they start seeing it, then they go, ah, I see. So that's a small step, right? So it's one Mm -hmm. step at a time. Um, So for me is for, for absolutely, like you said, right, Dylan, that, you're guilty of that. I'm still guilty of that too, even today sometimes. Right? Mm. I always thought that, I mean, especially when I, I've been doing, you know, um, constructions, uh, uh, renovation for, uh, my, you know, our own apartment and I've been doing it myself and I've learned it through, you know, YouTube and, you know, you see these people doing it so easy and you think that, you know, I can do it too. Right. So you learn yeah, it, yeah. but then, you know, when you put the towel up on the wall, I go, oops. <laughs> right. So it's always yeah. that, that, and then, 
and and for me is that you know um i i always go back to that and and you know go back to to the the stage where you ask the right question mm -hmm. yeah so i am still doing that i mean even today you know i will always be in a situation where i was frustrated with a lot of things right yeah yeah um you know, be it whether it's it, it's it's work or family or you know personal or whatever it is, right? Um, but you you step back again. You know, you're looking at it from a different different um, perspective, a different point of view. You step back mm -hmm. and you shift your mindset and you ask the right question, right? Yeah. So you don't have to ask the question to find answer. It's not about trying to ask question to find answer. It's asking questions that what is that question that will help you to take it to the next level, and then you find your way. Yeah. First year, first year experiences, because Zach and I have talked about this mm. with m almost every single guest and just getting all their different insights in the same way that we try and learn about everyone's origin story. And for the most part, everyone's origin story lines up. Almost everybody is interested in architecture and then realizes architecture is boring and then goes into industrial design. <laughs> and then almost everybody has an absolutely terrible first year experience and it sucks, except for Steven. Steven yeah. said it was fine. <laughs> yeah. so i don't know what he's on yeah and then, and then Cam, campbell yeah. said his first year experience was great but he lives in australia so that's also very understandable yeah <laughs> doing doing school in at rmit which is a school that none of us i mean i've i've physically been there but i've never attended a class there what was your first year experience like terrified yeah. <laughs> Completely. Yep. Terrified. Total. Yeah. Um, but having said that, um, I think there was another side of me that were also um excited. So I'm pretty sure you can relate to that. So I have yeah. one side of me that are terrified, but then on the other side of me that is very excited. So I couldn't kind of wait to, you know, to learn, right? But when the workload, I'm pretty sure you you know that too, when the workload start to pile up. Yeah. So when yeah. the workload start to pile up, um, that's when you feel the pressure, right? So that pressure somehow, sometimes, sometimes it kind of turn into, okay, uh, is this is this right? Is this good enough? Is this, you know, am I doing it? It it what the what the professor wants, right? Yeah. Um, like I said, it took me a while, you know, so it took me about a year and a half or so to kind of, you know, shift my mindset and learn it from a different perspective and realize that, okay, it's not about what the professor want. It's about me going through this journey. Mm -hmm. So what do I need to do to, you know, get certain thing sort of done? Now, yeah. done doesn't mean that it's perfect 100% done either. Right. So again, like I said, you know, that that's how that's how I started to kind of learn to shift. Right. Mm -hmm. But yes, absolutely. The first year. Um, but I have to say um, I have put in my heart and soul in first year. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, learning perspective. My yeah, youth, very, absolutely. Very I had to learn perspective when I was in first year. Um, you know, learn. What do you mean, marker? What do you mean we don't color it in? Yeah. <laughs> it's a marker. Isn't that like a magic marker? So that that's the whole the whole thing, right? So I mean, we had to learn quite a lot of things, uh, you know, hands on, you know, in comparison because that was you know twenty five years ago. So we don't don't have three D printing machines. We don't have you know yeah. computer. We don't have you know everything. It's all hands on, right? So for us, we have to learn you know everything, um, quite how to put it from the very basic. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think I enjoy that journey. That part of me loved the process, but there's another part of me that really finding that workload um, was incredible. Mm -hmm. So that was part of me that um, told me the longest time to to learn. So again, like I say, you know, once I understand and started to shift that mindset, it didn't happen overnight. You know, it's no. I went through a bit by bit as well. You know, just like you guys. So once I understood that, it it really did sort of slowly lifted off that that pressure as well. Yeah. Yeah, for me. And I, in a way, I had a slightly different, different, um, how to put it, um, different background as well at that time because um, coming from, you know, coming from a from an Asian, you know, family was that we are not allowed to fail. Mm. So um, that was a huge, huge, you know, <laughs> pressure on my shoulder as well. Um, uh, again, yeah, how to put it, um, you learn, you, 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 you strive, you know, in a way, um, to work under pressure. Um, yeah. I, I'm glad in a way, and I, I've, I've been through it. I've been through the, 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 you know, days of, you know, I have no more energy. I couldn't, I need to sleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll see many of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I absolutely understand. Like I said, when you guys going through what you're going through, you know, I absolutely understand because I've been through it myself. Um, but you sold your one. Yeah, my record, you know, I remember my record was going through like a seventy three hours or something with no sleep. Maybe a little sure. short snap you in there, you yeah. know, just to but I went through that, right? Mm -hmm. So you just sold sold your one. Um now the decisions you make at that time, um, you just have to kind of be, um, not beat yourself up. So mm -hmm. you did your best given the circumstances and be it whether it comes out, come back at 70, 75, 80, you know, 65, whatever, right? Um, for me was, was that, okay, I've done it, can it in? I based on the decision I made at that time, okay, whatever come back, it came back, and I'm not going to point fingers. So that's the biggest thing that a lot of students need to learn as well. So like mm -hmm. I said, there's no such thing as perfect, right? So for me was that um, I make peace with myself. Does that make sense at all, yeah. right? So don't beat yourself too, uh, like I said, you know, um, was that the perfect project? No, it wasn't, right? But did I finish and complete? Okay, now what are the targets I need to hit, right? So that was the biggest thing as well. So I hit that target is in the deadline. I had it in and it's it's there. Um, so for me is that when the when the when the mark comes back, when the project comes back to me, um, then I would look at it and say, okay, now what what do I need to do the next time, right? Mm -hmm. So again, going back to what we were discussing earlier, right? So you're asking the next question, yeah, right? What do you need to do? So there is, you know, you're not, you can't hand it in the second time. You think everyone can do a better, do better work second time, third time, fourth time, right? But you yeah. don't have the second time, third time, fourth time yeah. to do it. You had that one time, right? So, but again, that learning is not for anyone, but it's for yourself. So yeah. like I said, if you, if you can learn to kind of shift that mindset, you know, and, and every process you go through is not for anybody else, but for yourself. 
Next in our conversation, we bring to you one of the earliest uh, assistant educators that we had when we were attending Humber Industrial Design School, and that is the fantastically bearded Reese Bennett. So why did, why did you leave Shape? Uh, I left Shape because I, so I, when I graduated from school, I, I, I wanted to do uh, furniture stuff. It was kind of what I, I kind of wanted to get into that. It was kind of like what was calling my name kind of thing. And I had an opportunity from a local wood shop actually in Toronto and they gave me the opportunity to go and like the guy taught me everything from like everything about building furniture. He's like, if you want to learn this, like I'll, I'll teach you everything and I'll bring you on as like an apprentice kind of thing. Um, Cause I was super eager, super interested. And uh, I, like I said, like I learned a huge amount of shape, but I was like, I don't want to do this forever. And I, I yeah. something that really like weighed on me a lot was um, design, design stuff that people don't really need a lot of. Like uh, we'd be doing like, you know, Bluetooth speakers and all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, in the end, like no one really, for me, like no one needs an, a new, the new generation of like a Bluetooth speaker that has an extra button on it or whatever, you know? And it's just like really, really yeah. contributing to just so much waste that it really, really bothered me. And um, having the opportunity to, you know, like design and build furniture, I was like, this is a great way to kind of offset that. Where like, if I'm if I'm creating waste, at least I can create something that someone can keep for, you know, maybe would be something they pass down to their family or something, you know, like the opportunities there for that to happen. So that's was one of the reasons that the furniture really drew me in. And then having the ability to work with my hands, like I said, like I grew up in a really small town. We did a little, like I was, I'm used to like, you know, being on my feet and working with my hands a lot. So that really, really appealed to me. And I worked for about four years, I think, four or five years in different workshops around uh, Toronto. I went from like zero skill to in the end, like being like one of like the, like the like head like um, woodworker guys in, in, in the shops I was working in, like over, overseeing production and stuff wow. as things. And uh, so like that was a huge skill or a huge boost for my confidence as well because that level of skill that I was able to achieve over those like four, I think it was about four years um, from literally zero knowledge to, you know, being someone who was like quite knowledgeable in what I was doing. And I felt really confident that I knew what I was doing to the point where we were working, I was working in a place where we were putting out like, you know, like, like between 50 and 100 pieces of furniture a month. And uh, that was just like a small, wow. a small wood shop. There's like maybe ten of us working there, and uh, and you know it was great. It was super awesome, super super great. But uh, in the end, it's a lot of hard work, and you don't get paid very much, unfortunately. And I felt that I wasn't, I wasn't using my degree enough. I wasn't having the opportunity to design as much because I like I was on the the manufacturing side of things always, so I was always doing production. Um, and uh, so that was one of the reasons why I kind of jumped back into working in studios. And uh, after doing the furniture stuff, like the production stuff, I was able to get a job in a, a furniture studio in Toronto. And I worked there for a couple of years. And that was like amazing. Did all, all um, um, like office furniture and stuff like that. And some 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 hardwood furniture as well. But it was mostly uh, for companies like Union Camper and, and, and um, Steelcase and, and places like that. So it was, it was really great. What does a portfolio look like to get into a furniture design company? Uh, my portfolio didn't really have any furniture stuff in it. It had all my yeah. ID stuff in it, but my skill set and knowledge in making furniture was what kind of got me that job. Because it's, it's like, you know, if you can design a car, certainly you can design a chair. 
And if you can build chairs, certainly you can design it as well, right? So uh, I kind of had such a broad skill set. And then again, like with my hands-on experience doing this stuff, uh, you know, it was just a kind of a, that was a huge bonus because I actually had the most knowledge in the studio with, do, with working with wood and uh, doing like hardwood furniture, like a, like a, like a, um, in that like traditional sense. Whereas most of the furniture the guys that were working on there was like metal and, and different laminates and like uh and things like that, right? So uh like cast aluminum and stuff. So uh to bring in that kind of more traditional uh sensibility, it kind of just really fleshed out the whole team. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, was this, great. I love working. Was this love for furniture something that you kinda um found during your time at uh, at Humber? Or was this kind of like a love that you've always had? Yeah, it was something that definitely developed at, more after, but my last couple of years of school and then after I graduated, and, and it came from, um, I was re- like, I was really interested in doing automotive stuff when I was in school because it was, uh, for me, like really fun to sketch that stuff, right? Like sketching cars and stuff is really, really fun. But in the end, I always found like, I'm just, I'm just drawing something to make it look cool. And I'm just, you know, trying to come up with a form that is, you know, interesting or whatever. But there's no real like function to the outside of a car. And sometimes maybe with like a, a truck or something, you know, there there's there's function to the outside. But with furniture, like it's so driven by the function and the aesthetic often comes from the the different like features and stuff that the, the, the product itself has. And that's what was really, really drew me to to furniture was that it was so, so based in function. And um like even I learned a lot about systems furniture as well when I was working at the furniture furniture studio I was working at, and um, and that's like a whole nother level. That's like if you can design a, a table, you can design a chair, sure, but try and like imagine that it's like a like a Lego or like connects, and all every different type of, of variation of how that chair and table and desk and all these other like storage units and stuff can go together, and it has to work in any different combination that you can come up with. Like that's what systems furniture is, and it was like. I, I found that to be super interesting and super fun. It was extremely tedious at times, um, but like super interesting to take something that's as simple as like a desk and how can you turn that into a system that can accommodate, you know, a hundred people or, or 20 people and all this kind of stuff. It was really, really cool. Really interesting. So what is like, what is the difference in, in sketching styles between an, an industrial designer versus a, at this point, uh, an anticipated animation student uh well from so from what i understand so far it's a it's a lot more mm-hmm. like well you know it's it's more fine arts based first of all whereas you know mm-hmm. we're more on the technical-ish side of things um leaning towards that uh, but also just like um, being able to sketch with emotion and convey emotion through characters and things like that um so it's a lot a lot different from you know drawing products and stuff and it's a lot of the same stuff in terms of like, like understanding structure and perspective and, and that type of thing. Um, I'm really excited about it, but uh, it's from what I understand, it's a lot of work, uh, and I, I've been doing a lot more research into it and watching like a lot of documentaries about um, filmmaking and all that kind of stuff, and and trying to really get amped up for it. And uh, I'm I think it's going to be really great. Really great. I was actually listening to a podcast today, an animation podcast by these two brothers who used to work at Disney and uh, they were talking about students entering, like entering their first year of animation, specifically during COVID and like learning, learning remotely and stuff like that. Oh. And uh, 
one of the things that really struck me was that they were saying, uh, like, uh, a lot of the same things that we tell our students at Humber, and one of them was, um, you know, it just takes practice. Like, we mm-hmm. give you these base level, the base knowledge to here's these basic techniques, and you we can't teach you more than that. You have to teach yourself by practicing. And uh, the other thing that really struck me was uh, something that I struggle with all the time with first-year students, and I'm sure Catherine could probably attest to this, is, is trying to switch their mindset from thinking of, of grades and uh, that grades don't matter. And they said the exact same thing, like literally like verbatim when <laughs> I tell the students, I was like, whoa, this is so weird, because it's a different different industry, but it's a lot of the same skill stuff, right? And it's, it's uh, kind of the onus is on you to learn. And they were saying, like, trying to convince students that it doesn't matter what your grade is. What matters is that you realize that that grade is a marker of where you are and that it's an indication of what you need to do to improve. And uh, that in the end, uh, no studio is ever going to say, like, what were your marks for, you know, when when you did your degree or your diploma or whatever. They're going to say, let me see your portfolio. And, you know, that's indicative of what your marks were usually. so that really struck me when I was, I was like, holy crap, like it's the same. It's literally just the same stuff. It just comes yeah. down to you putting in the time and the effort and being willing to learn and practice. And I was like, wow, it's just, you know, I'm, pre- I'm prepped. I'm already prepped because I, you know, I preach this to my kids all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's you've been through the ringer before. Exactly, yeah. You, you understand. Well, that's it. that's, understand that's it. so funny though. Cause yeah, like it's exactly when we were talking to Catherine the other day, right? That was mm-hmm. the big thing. We had the conversation on, you know, what, you know, Dylan and I looking back on the program thinking, what's the best thing we learned, you know, besides the whole practical skills of sketching and CAD and model making and whatnot, it was that mindset of, okay, marks don't matter. You know, it's, it doesn't mean you're, you're garbage or that you're amazing. It just, you know, it's trying to tell you, look, like, here's some things to improve. You got a 70, who cares? Just yeah. keep going. Yeah. Right. And, and that exactly. was one thing that I know Dylan and I, looking back, wish we knew that in first year, because yeah. like you said, it's something you deal with the first years because you, 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 you think the teacher's lying to you or just trying to make you feel better yeah. by saying yeah. that, right? Because you're like, when they're like, don't worry about it. You're like, you're just saying, trying to make me feel better, but like, I'm worrying about it because I don't want to fail. And then by the f- end of the fourth year, you're like, wow, I wish I just did not care you know, about that, about worried yeah. about the marks and, and had that mindset. Cause that was like a, it was a, I mean, I mean, Dylan talked about it before and it was fourth year during BRP and, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, during the BRP and, program. um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Drake, Drake, Drake Nolte came, came, came oh, to yeah. for the mid, for this for the midterm yeah. critiques. And he came to talk, came to see Bruce and we were in the auto studio at the time. And we had a big, interesting talk with him. But that was one thing he was talking about was was that, like, you shouldn't care. Because I think we were talking about thesis at one point, and there was a bunch of us talking about, you know, asking him, like, you know, what should we do? Like, really worried about, like, what and he was talking about, like... Yes. Someone complaining, I don't know. Yeah, I think it was something like that. And he was saying, like, look, you do. Who cares? Like, don't, you know, they're not going to ask you what mark you got on thesis. They're just going to look at the project, you know, like... And it was one of those things is like, damn, I really wish I understood that in, in first year, you know, and started from there. Yeah. But like, it would be great to be able to understand that in first year, but 
I think, unfortunately, it's something you can only understand having experienced it. And to tell someone who's exactly. just started, yeah. just starting out, they have so little experience doing this. They have a very limited skill set, and to say, "Don't, don't worry about this number that we have to attribute to everything you do." You know, it's like for them, it's like that's the that is the one link to what how they're doing basically. You know, especially if you're coming from high school, coming straight from high school, you know, everything everything is based around what marks you're getting. So to, yeah. to go and go into this completely different type of learning environment and have someone say all that stuff you've based the last twelve years of your learning on doesn't matter, throw it out, don't don't worry about that. It's like, well, what do I worry about then? You know, <laughs> yeah. like, like, yeah. like what the hell? And uh, I, I completely understand it. Like I was a student once and, and not too long ago either, and I will be a student again. And I'm very thankful now going into this program, knowing that it's probably going to be a similar type of learning experience, but I won't worry about that stuff now because I already know, you know. I just have to focus on improving my skills. And if I do that and I put in time and energy, I'll get where I want to be, so. And finishing off with our part one of best 300 series, we have another one of her profs from design school, another one of her favorite humans. One of my, I don't know, I guess, he's a weird to say father figure, father figure in a weird way. The legend himself, Bruce Thompson. Mm -hmm. Was was design or, cause you do a lot of illustration, a lot of painting, a lot of artistic creativity. Is that, did, did that happen in high school? Is that where you kind of realized that that was something you would be, keen in pursuing as a as a career like graduating high school and going into college Um, one of the reasons my parents sent me to Waldorf was because they felt it was a wider education. Uh, certainly people take art in high school, but I think that at most high schools, art class might be considered, um, an empty credit, yeah. uh, a makeup class kind of, okay, take this. You'll probably be able to pass it. Yeah. Um, get the arts credit completely. Get the arts, yeah. <laughs> Whereas uh, I think that at Waldorf it was taken more seriously. Not that we took any particular classes, but it was all. For instance, we had to do this thing called a main lesson book that your mom will remember. She'll and, remember that. And you had to. It didn't matter what what you were doing. You'd be doing physics one uh, in one three week period, and then you'd be doing maths in the next, in history, and in the one after that. But all of the books had to be neatly written out and illustrated. Wow. So, so it was a really good experience for me. So growing up, yeah, I figured, oh, I'll be a painter or I'll be a commercial artist or um, I'd never heard of industrial design. Oh. Um, and then when I graduated, um, just when your mom was starting Waldorf, I went to Europe. I did my, took a year off, saved up. One summer, went to Europe in 85, and it was such an eye-opener. And I still didn't really, I'd never heard of industrial design, but you couldn't miss it. Things were so different. Mm -hmm. And little things, the telephones in the phone boxes were different. The buses were different. The everything, the packaging. And it was just such an eye-opener to me. 
And for me, this was the beginning of a realization that I might want to do something more than just painting. Um, and then when I got back uh, to Canada, I worked another year to save up for college. And I was going to go to the OCA and take um, what was called C&D. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's commercial design, or, but it was basically illustration. And I'd gone to an open house and I just happened to walk into this place where they were uh, doing industrial design. And I walked into the industrial design department and I thought, this is what I want to do. <laughs> this is so cool. Then some guy had built <clears throat> a clay model of a scooter. Mm. I wish I could see this because when I was 20, I guess 19 or 20, when I saw it, I thought this is the best thing ever. It's probably like a, a kind of mediocre second year project. But at the yeah. time I thought, oh, I so badly want to get into this program because it was kind of a synthesis of the things that I'd seen and done, uh, having been at Waldorf, developed my sketching. But I, I also had done, they're, they're big into uh, woodwork and even mm. the guys, at least this used to be the case, the guys used to have to take what was called handwork, which was, you know, knitting and darning wow. socks and we had to just sew shirts and everything. We, we had to wow. learn all that stuff. So I'd always liked working with my hands, going to Europe and seeing all this new stuff and, and really of course, Europe's always been a little bit ahead of North America in terms of design. But seeing all of that and then getting back to Canada and seeing that you could actually get a job doing this, mm -hmm. I thought, this is great. <laughs> I was hell-bent on doing architecture. I had the day, the day that I'm going to tell you a story now, Bruce, of the way in the personal impact that you had on me getting into this program. I think that the reason that I'm here today is because of a conversation I had with you back in, this is April of 2016, I think. And I came in for the open house because I had came to Humber's open house at the very uh, back in October or whatever it was, and just didn't pay attention. I was so hell bent on doing architecture. I didn't even, didn't bother to listen or pay attention. So completely glossed over everything. And then I, I applied to Carleton for architecture, for the architecture design program, got in, they were going to give me a scholarship and I was so close. I had all the papers signed. I just had to hand them in. I had to like send them back and then I would be in Carleton for architecture. And I said to my dad, I said, I, we need like the Humber open houses this weekend. Let's go. Let's just listen to the thing one last time, at least to say that we did it. Worst case scenario, we lose three hours out of the day and doesn't it's not a big deal. So we go in and we're listening and everything. And you were there. I think you were there with Patrick. And we did the tour and everything. Everything went fine. And at the end of it, I was still on the fence. I, I wasn't sold. And you were on your way out. And I think you were talking to it. You were talking to another prospective student that was there. And I said, I got I need to ask. I told my dad, I said, hold on. I was also late for work at this point. I had a part-time, I had a part-time job, a Canadian tire I had to get to. And I was like, I need to, I need to ask this question because if I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be confident in my decision and where I go to school. So I waited for this kid who was talking to you and this kid just kept on talking and kept asking questions. I keep looking down at my phone and I'm like, okay, I'm half an hour late, 45 minutes late. I'm an hour late now. And finally he left and I came up to you and I said something along the lines of like, I'm interested in doing architecture, but for some reason, 
this has also captivated my information and I'm kind of torn. And you said something along the lines of like, I had the same thoughts when I was going to school and when I was approaching college. And the fact of the fact of the matter is that being an architect, you'd write like out of the gate. And for most of your career, you can potentially go your entire career without doing anything insanely creative and insanely noteworthy. Whereas in industrial design, you can get your hands into each part of the process. You can dip your toe into each different facet of what goes into, whether it's a car or a shoe or a cell phone or something, even as small as a desk lamp. And then I said, okay, like, thank you very much. And we walked back out to the car in one of the many Humber parking lots. <laughs> and we sat in the car, we drove to McDonald's and I, I didn't say anything this entire car ride until we got to McDonald's, got a coffee. And then my dad said, so what do you think? And I said, I'm going to Humber for industrial design. <laughs> that, that, that conversation sold me on, cause I think, I think it was just a bit of apprehension of job prospects at the end of the day, right. Of just being concerned of if I go to architecture, like I'm just going to end up designing a, a Walmart bathroom for the rest of my life. Yeah, I, I don't like to knock architecture. Um, you'll note earlier that I said that I was <clears throat> uh, in high school interested in um, in becoming an illustrator, uh, mm -hmm. painter, what have you. But yeah, architecture was my my first, the, the thing that I thought I was going to be, become originally, um, it was only when I was in grade 12 with Dr. Levin <laughs> telling me how bad I was at math and realizing, you know, math is kind of important to architecture. And, you know, it's, it's funny because um, if I'm interested in it, calculus, that's what he was trying to teach. Calculus. Oh, calculus. Anyway, if I'm interested in things, I'm good at maths. I can, when I'm building a model, you need maths to do models too. Uh, I've got a very good friend who was just as rubbish at math as I was in grade 12. And he's now a, a pilot for WestJet. And trust me, you need maths for that too. <laughs> yeah, so quite absolutely. often you, you find that your interests, um, things you think you may not be interested in, you become interested in them when they align with what you're doing and what you're pursuing. Um, but yeah, I thought I was going to go into architecture. Um, part of the reason I didn't, one was the maths, but then the other thing is I was talking to a professor, um, and I believe this was at the OCA, and he said, no, architecture is a brilliant field, um, but it's a very difficult one to make your way in. So quite often what you find is that the most famous of architects are are in many cases, quite wealthy yes, before yeah. they before they became a famous architect, because it's it's a very difficult job to work your way up from. And if you start designing the bathrooms for tract houses, it may be a difficult thing to get to get out of. Um, now, I say all of that. I never became an architect, so I'm not really uh, in the best position to say that. But I I think. Uh, it's what you said. I think that as an industrial designer, and I probably said this to you when I was doing my presentation back in 2016, I really think that industrial design is the last bastion mm -hmm. of the Renaissance person. Mm -hmm. In most 
most jobs now have become more and more and more specialized. It's almost impossible for anybody to be a Da Vinci or Michelangelo these days. And the reason for that is, is if you're that good at something, then you're going to be that guy who's studying that one microbe for this one thing, like at the very leading edge of something, but you're, you have to be so knowledgeable that you don't have the space for all of these other things, for, for generalism. And one of the things that I like about industrial design is that certainly as an industrial designer, as you said, you can get your, your hands dirty. You can be in every part from the concept, uh, conception of an idea, of conception of a product, right through the model making, the sketching out, the, the testing of it, the dealing with people to see whether or not they're interacting with it. Um, you can be in every part of the process right through to the actual um, delivery of it, the actual finish. <clears throat> and it's, it's very few fields that you can do this. And it's, um, I've always said that it's even people who have taken our course, not everybody who takes our course ends up being an industrial designer, but you'd be surprised how well industrial design as a course prepares you for, um, for even other, um, other uh, uh, jobs, other professions. Uh, and part of it is because I think um, anybody who can, can learn to be creative, that creativity can be used anywhere. I don't care if you're talking about business, science, creativity is, is fundamental um, to all advances. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that in, in that way, it's, it is really... This is one of the reasons I love industrial design so much is that you're not on a production line screwing that yeah. one bolt onto you're you're actually challenged on a regular basis to be mm -hmm. more creative to do more to find out more um, and you end up becoming an expert in all sorts of things if you're designing a playground you become an expert in playground safety mm -hmm. it's it, Whatever you're doing, you have to become an, an expert at it. And I, I think that's one of the great things about industrial design is it's not turning over the same page every day. You're doing, generally, you're going to be doing something new quite regularly. And I, I've got a short attention span, so it suits me <laughs> really well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit scary, too, because there's that whole uncertainty thing of you have a job and you have security right now. Yeah. And then all of a sudden for you to say, I'm going to give that up and hope that I get something better. That's kind of intimidating. It's kind of terrifying. It is. It is. Uh, I was, I was lucky. I already had uh, clients. I'd kept mm -hmm. doing freelance while I was freelancing as it were. Um, and uh, because of that, that eased my, my switch. Right. But, um, but yeah, so uh so then I got into uh, industrial design, back into industrial design. I was working with um, uh, several different studios on a, a freelance basis, uh, back and forth, uh, working as they needed me. Mm -hmm. And then I began to think, you know, <clears throat> I always wanted to be, what I, why I gravitated towards industrial design was, as I mentioned, that scooter. 
Yes. Yeah. I always wanted to get into transportation design, but it never struck me that it was something that I would be able to do. Mm-hmm. I'm a Canadian, and yeah. my last name's Thompson. Come on. It's not. If, if it's not. It's not Italian sounding if, or German yeah. sounding. If you're, if you're a car designer, you've got a brilliant name like Alessandro Tersini or something. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Thompson just doesn't have that. It, it just doesn't. Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so yeah, I, uh, I hit another wall, not really hit a wall. I just had another aha moment and thought, you know, I really do want to get into vehicle design. And I recognized that that was going to be difficult. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Given the fact that I lived in Canada. Um, one of the things about Canada is that I think being, again, a generalist uh, in the industrial design field, it helps you um, keep working mm-hmm. because there's enough small uh, design firms. There's a, you, You're not likely here to get hired by Honda yeah, right. and be looked after for the rest of your life. So you can make a good uh, living freelancing. But I decided uh, I wanted to get my... Um, uh, get my degree in uh, vehicle design and I'd just gone through a di- divorce. So that was another good reason to get the hell out of the country. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I thought, no, uh, it was a little late. I was in my thirties. Uh, I I felt at that point, very old. And to you guys, you must think thirties, man, he was ancient. <laughs> ancient. Um, <laughs> but I went back to school and uh, uh I went to the Royal College of Art in London. It was a great experience. Um, living in London was one great experience. And of course, going to the RCA was brilliant. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, when I graduated, I was even more in debt than I had been when I graduated <laughs> from, from the OCA. Um, I'd, uh, I'd managed to go to the RCA by uh, selling my house. Um, and even that didn't really cover it. It's uh, it's an expensive program to go to, as most of them are. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's very difficult to get into this kind of rarefied industry without that, or it was at that time, I feel. Um, that's becoming less and less true because we've got graduates who haven't done their master's degrees, who have managed to get into um, uh, some serious companies. But regardless, yeah. I took I took that course. It was brilliant, and as I had to pay off this massive debt, I had to get a job as quickly as possible. Um, I had an offer to teach at a university in Moscow. Wow! No, I think my new wife would have divorced me because <laughs> she's from Malaysia and she thinks Canada is too cold. I can't imagine what she would have thought. Of <laughs> yeah, Russia's probably not winning you any brownie points in that. No, but uh, I, I didn't take that job because uh, although the money was good, it was being paid in rubles and I couldn't um, pay off my British pound debt in rubles. When yeah. I was talking to the guy, he said, ah, but you can live in like king in Moscow for this money. And I said, yeah, but I got to pay off a debt pounds. <laughs> yeah. This won't work. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I was fortunate enough. I um, I put uh, some applications out to Mercedes-Benz Advanced Design in Tokyo, and that looked promising. Uh-huh. But I ended up getting a um, an interview in Cologne, Germany. 
uh, with Ford Europe and got hired and uh, and ended up working in in Germany. So wow. so it, it was um, it was and it was a really enjoyable thing to do because this is what I'd always wanted to do. This is I'd always and I kept on having to pinch myself. Yeah, yeah. Oh look at look at me! I'm a car designer. So uh, so yeah, it was uh, it, it was a really amazing um, experience. Uh, and what what surprised me, I think most, was that when I got into the uh, into the company, there were about uh, I, at the time I think there were probably about forty five designers there in the studio. About six of them were Canadian. Really? Wow. Yeah, and I thought, what the heck? <laughs> Where did you come from? What are, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> I didn't know Canadians were allowed to be vehicle designers. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, there, it, it was uh, it was quite funny because uh, um, I, it was just so unexpected. Yeah. Right. Was there ever a feeling of imposter syndrome when you were there? Like- oh, always, always. I mean, I. I generally feel like an imposter you know that yeah. i'm a professor come on <laughs> absolutely <laughs> who, not who let me do this <laughs> it just doesn't but, make sense but yeah absolutely i i remember i felt like something like an imposter at the rca i remember sitting down and doing my first drawing in the transportation design department at the royal college of art it's the worst drawing i've done in my life i felt oh I'm doing this terrible. I'm trying to hide it because there's other people in the room, and I just thought, "Oh, what a start! This is awful." And the same thing happened at Ford. For basically, here's your desk. Go design something. It was honestly like that. I don't have time to speak to you right now. Do some sketches. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Process Podcast. We hope you greatly enjoy it. If you want to send us an email about the podcast, you can send that to hi.theprocesspodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're interested in any design inquiries, send an email to hi at bigdesigncompany.com or visit our website, www.bigdesigncompany.com. And Zach Watson. Yes, sir. What is our Instagram? The process underscore underscore podcast. Beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, Children of all ages, we'll see you tomorrow. Peace. The process.